the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we surrender our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior. What God imparts to us is His divine nature, that there's a spiritual rebirth that happens. And with God's divine nature comes God's desires. We begin to have longings like God's longings. We begin to have desires like God's desires. We begin to have a perspective like God's perspective. It all comes with that divine nature. It's not that we are divine. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Peter. Sometimes it's hard to understand why you still make worldly choices, even after you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In today's message, Pastor Gary will explain that there will always be a struggle between your human nature to want to do selfish things and your new nature, where your longings are for God's desires. But because of your relationship with God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can overcome those worldly desires. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So as we always do when we start a new book study and uh, a little background on the book, it's not too different from 1 Peter, which we just finished last week. The writer is uh, Simon Peter. Um, Although I will tell you that a lot of liberal uh, theologians debate whether or not Simon Peter was really the author of this epistle. So there's great question as to its authenticity and its authorship. Um, and it's mainly based on the fact that it's stylistically different from First Peter. Uh, but you know what settles it for me as to whether or not he's the writer? It's chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> Simon Peter. Okay, so there you have it. Uh, it was, uh, with all due respect, uh, or no respect for the liberal theologians, it's right there in verse 1. It was written probably from Rome. We don't really know for sure, but if it's still a continuation of where he was in First Peter, then uh, the veiled reference to Babylon, it is believed in First Peter, is a reference to Rome. It's kind of code word because during this time, again, it's one of the most persecuted times in, in Christian history. And so it's believed that he was writing from Rome. We don't know for sure. It was written to believers in general, no specific recipients. It's not like 
you know, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, that's the book of Ephesians, or the church at Colossae, that's the book of Colossians. This is just the second epistle of Peter, and in his opening remarks, he just addresses it to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. That's verse 1. So it's written to believers in general. And the date is believed to be around 65 A.D., which would make it a year later after 1 Peter, and it would make it about two years before Peter was martyred. Because again, this is the time when Nero is emperor, and um, Nero will be known, unfortunately, for his persecution of Christians, and among them who will die under his uh, leadership are the apostles Peter and Paul. And so it is believed that Peter is martyred around 67 A.D. Uh, Nero reigns until 68 A.D. And so unfortunately, uh, Peter is going to die at his hands. uh, But Peter is ushered into his eternal reward. And that is in part uh, what 1 and 2 Peter are about. Because he, he wants to continually remind us that this world is not our home. We're only passing through and we have an ultimate reward. And so Peter's gone on to enjoy his ultimate reward. And history tells us, the Bible doesn't record it, but history tells us that uh, when the opportunity came for him to be martyred, and I don't mean opportunity as in a, you know, a wonderful occasion, just when, when that moment came, uh, he was uh, offered the opportunity of how he wanted to die, and he wanted to die being crucified. But upside down, history says, because he didn't want to be uh, crucified in the same manner in which Jesus died. He just didn't feel worthy of it, so he was crucified upside down. What, what a lot of people aren't aware of is that history tells us also that his wife was uh, martyred with him. And uh, so she's kind of an unsung hero in Scripture. She doesn't really get any reference other than the fact that it mentions that Peter was married. One of the miracles of Jesus was the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. And so we know that he was uh, married, and history says that his wife was martyred right beside him. So um, obviously a man, Peter, who uh, has occupied a lot of the press coverage throughout the Gospels, as I mentioned in First Peter, uh, next to the mention of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is more written about Peter than anybody else. And so uh, he is faithful uh, to the Lord. And he writes here the second epistle. It's only three chapters long. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get through chapter one, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but there are simple subject matters of each chapter. Chapter one here is basically written to remind believers to grow in their walk with God. That's basically the, the theme behind chapter one. He's going to write to remind believers to continue to grow in their walk with God, in their relationship with the Lord. Uh, When we get to chapter 2, it's basically about a warning regarding false teachers. There have always been false teachers. There are currently false teachers. There will be false teachers until Jesus returns. And then he is, you know, regarded, obviously, as the sole source of truth. But until that day, you have to be discerning. Because not everything that you hear is necessarily biblically true. And so we have to be discerning. We have to be wise. We have to know scripture to be able to know the difference between what is true doctrine and what is heresy. And in chapter two, Peter devotes an entire chapter to talking about false teachers and how to be aware of them. And he calls them out. And then finally, in chapter three, he encourages believers uh, about the imminent return of Jesus Christ, which is the hope of the church. Jesus is coming again. And so there's a prophetic element here in this second epistle as well. When we get to chapter three, we'll, we'll 
we'll see that together. But if you look here with me into verse 1 of chapter 1, again, he addresses himself as Simon Peter, and he's using both his original given name at the time of his birth, which his Hebrew given name was Shimon, uh, or the English transliteration is Simon. Shimon is, is from the Hebrew word that basically means to hear or to listen. Uh, the idea is that God hears, God listens, and so he's named that way. That's his given Hebrew name, Shimon. But he also has adopted the name that Jesus gave him, Simon Peter. The name Peter was a name that, that Jesus gave him. And the occasion, if you remember, is Mar- uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, the, the scene is Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus has taken his disciples up north over what today is the Golan Heights over to Caesarea Philippi where Jesus has this dialogue with them about who do men say that I am. He wants to know, you know, what, what are people tweeting about me? What, you know, what's the talk on the street? What are people saying about me? And they say to him, well, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah and, and, or some other prophet. And he says, but who do you say? that I am. And Peter is the one who steps up and says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, he doesn't get credit for that because Jesus points out the fact that you're not smart enough to have arrived at that by yourself, Simon. Because he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. That was his dad's name. For my father has revealed this to you from heaven. And so even the revelation that comes from off Peter's lips is divinely inspired. But at least Peter does acknowledge, being used by the Lord, that Jesus, you are the Christ. Christ is from the Greek word Christos, meaning anointed one. It is the same word in Hebrew as Mashiach, where we get our English word Messiah. And so he's saying, you're the anointed one. You're the one that the prophets have foretold for all these years from Genesis to Malachi. And so he makes this great profession of faith. And it is there that Jesus then uh, names him, you are Peter, you are Petros, and upon this rock I will build my church. And by that he did not mean I'm going to build my church on you, Peter, as the first pope. He did not mean that, with all due respect to my Catholic friends. Okay, how do we know that? It's a simple translation of the language. When he renamed Simon Shimon Peter Petros, It is the Greek masculine, and it means little stone. You are Petros, a little stone. But upon this rock, and it's a different word in the Greek, Petra, I will build my church. And Petra in the Greek means boulder, means huge, huge stone, boulder. So Jesus was saying that there's something bigger than you, Peter, because it's the profession or confession of your faith upon which the church will be built. So Peter was right in what he said, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, that's the basis upon which the church is built. Not Peter himself. God help us if the church is built on any man. Okay? And by the way, just for you linguistics... Petra is feminine, Petros is masculine, and a feminine word can never modify a masculine word and vice versa. So it's inconsistent with the language. Jesus was not saying, you're that rock, Peter, because the feminine and masculine uh, words don't modify one another. He's saying something bigger than you. What you said is true. And on the basis of that profession of faith, the church shall be built. And so Peter owns the name that Jesus gave him. He doesn't deny his Hebrew heritage. 
You know, there are plenty of Jewish people today who are believers in Jesus as Messiah. You don't, like, deny your Judaism. It's not like you, 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 you switch from being Jewish and now you're just a Christian. It's you're a Jew who believes in Christ as Messiah. So he's owning both. He's like, I was born Shimon. I proudly embrace my Hebrew heritage. But Jesus named me Peter, Petros. A little tiny stone, and that's who I am in comparison to the larger picture of the kingdom. So that's how he identifies himself, and he calls himself a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Bondservant is literally translated slave. It's the Greek word doulos, and it is one who willingly submits to his master. And that's how Peter saw himself. That's how we should see ourselves as doulos, as slaves of Jesus Christ, that we willingly submit to our master, and our master is Jesus. And Peter also identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ because he was one of the original 12 apostles. Apostello just means one who is uh, sent out uh, because Jesus picks 12, one betrayed him. Uh, But otherwise, their mission was to be sent out to represent Christ, to be ambassadors, to be apostles, apostello. So he's one of the original 12, and he knows that. He's just simply identifying himself in the first verse. He's Shimon Petros. He's Simon Peter, a bondservant, a slave, willingly committed my life to my master, Jesus. And I'm also an apostle. And he writes again here in verse 1, to those who have obtained like precious faith. Isn't that good the way he refers to our faith? Is, it's precious. It's a precious commodity. You know, we should not take this for granted. To those who have, been, who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice that God modifies Savior, which modifies Jesus. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? So God is Jesus. Jesus is God. He's pointing out that fact that Jesus is God in flesh by his introduction there. And he says in verse 2, God is flesh in in Jesus. And he says in verse 2, grace and peace. That's often those twin words that go together. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Charis, shalom. This is a Greek and a Hebrew greeting. Be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So he mentions here, you might have picked up on it there between verses 2 and, um, and 4, uh, the word knowledge. He says there in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge. The word knowledge appears five times alone in chapter 1. The word appears seven times overall in, in the whole epistle, three chapters. But it appears five times here alone in chapter 1. And most of the time, not every time, there are two different words for knowledge in the Greek. One is epinosis and one is gnosis. Uh, Gnosis just means intellect or knowledge. Epinosis means experiential knowledge. Uh, it's, It's the difference between, you know, just gaining information by studying. That's gnosis. That's knowledge. And having a personal encounter whereby you learn through experience. 
It's that epinosis that is mentioned here in verse 2. When he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He's talking about an experiential knowledge. This is not some ethereal thing. This is just, you know, some philosophical idea, some notion about Jesus. That Jesus is knowable. That he is personable. You know, Gandhi once mistakenly said, God is that indefinable something which we all uh, feel, but which we cannot know. And of course, you know, Hinduism doesn't offer a personal relationship with a living God. Christianity does. And Peter was saying here basically that it's more than just a, a mental knowledge of God, that you can actually have an experiential knowledge with God. That's the word that is being used here, epinosis. And as to his divine power, notice, that has given to us all things. You know, our ability to have that experiential knowledge, that relationship with God, is the direct result of his divine power. It's nothing that we've done to achieve it. It's, it's the result of God's impartation of his grace, his power, his opening heaven to us, his being made available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. This comes by his divine power given to us pertaining to all things that pertain to life. Circle that word in your Bibles. That word in the Greek is zoe, not bios. You know, biology is the study of life that pertains to physical life. Zoe is a different Greek word that means the fullness of life, the fullness of life, every aspect of of life. He says that his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life, Zoe, and godliness through the knowledge. Here's epinosis again, this tangible experiential knowledge of him who called us by glory And virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Now, I like the way he said in verse 1 about precious faith. And now he mentions here in verse 4, precious promises. What is he he talking there about? What precious promises are given unto us? Actually, somebody counted and listed. I didn't check it out to know if it's true. You can count it on your own time. 7,474 promises are in the Bible. 7474. Somebody counted it out. I, I don't know if it's true or not. You can go home and count it yourself. But when you look at the Bible from cover to cover, there are a lot of promises that God makes. So when he speaks here about promises, it's stuff like, well, for example, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We quote this a lot about trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your way acknowledge him, and he will what? Direct your paths. That's a promise. When we trust in the Lord, we acknowledge him. We don't lean on ourselves. We lean on God. The promise attached to that is, and I'm going to direct your paths. James 4, 7, and 8. Another example, it says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There's a couple promises in there. When you resist the devil, uh, he will flee. That's God saying, that's a promise. If you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. That's a promise. So all through Scripture, Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. it's, It's an invitation. We call on the Lord. We cry out to Him. We can be saved. And so there's all kinds of promises all through the Bible. Again, perhaps many, as many as 7,474. And so Peter says, you know, we've been given all these exceedingly great and precious promises that through these... You may be partakers, notice at the end of verse 4, of the divine nature. What is that? Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through 
lust. Well, that last part, again, is what I opened up with. That part of what Peter writes in both First Peter and Second Peter is this whole concept that we don't belong to the world. Once we've been saved, we have been rescued from the world. We still have to live out our natural lives in this world. But now we are living it differently and for the glory of God. And we're passing through. We're aliens. We're strangers. We should begin to feel strangely uncomfortable in this world because our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And that's our ultimate destination. And, and so he speaks there about this divine nature. And what he means by that is upon birth, we all enter into a human nature. We're given a human nature. We're born uh, uh, physically. And so we have a human nature. And by the way, a lot of things attached to our human nature are not good because we're born into sin. Uh, David would write in Psalm 51, surely I was sinful from birth, uh, from, from the conception of my mother's womb. So we inherit a human nature, which is a sinful nature. But then when we get saved, by that I mean when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we surrender our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, what God imparts to us is his divine nature, that there's a spiritual rebirth that happens. And with God's divine nature comes God's desires. We begin to have longings like God's longings. We begin to have desires like God's desires. We begin to have a perspective like God's perspective. It all comes with that divine nature. It's not that we are divine, all right? Don't let it go to your head. It's only the idea that God has imparted to us a spiritual rebirth and now, prior to that, our human nature was completely uh, persuaded and guided and governed by human appetites and human desires and human philosophies. You get saved, and now you have God's divine nature. Now you have God's perspective, uh, God's ideas, God's uh, wisdom, God's uh, values. Everything related to God becomes part of you. Now, therein lies the conflict, though. Because your, your, your flesh has not been regenerated, but you've been given an impartation of God's divine nature. So your longings and your appetites are now for God, but you still might have that sin struggle because we're having a divine nature that is still housed within a human nature. And so the conflict exists. But your appetite is going to be governed by your nature. And before I got saved, my appetite, my personal desires were all humanly. Once you get saved, now you have a whole new appetite because you've been given a divine nature. You've been given God's, uh, his um, longings. And so therefore now you have an appetite for the things of God. And you, you know the difference, don't you? Before you got saved, you had appetites for the things of the world. Once you get saved, you have more appetites for the things of God. And so he has given us of his divine nature, having escaped now the corruption that is in the world through lust. Verse 5. But also, for this very reason... Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, and IV says in increasing measure, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful, in the knowledge, there you have it again, epinosis, of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that, we, that he was cleansed from his old sins. So here's what he's basically saying. He said, okay, listen, we've been given divine nature. So God has imparted to us his heart, his 
longings, his spirit. Okay, now we have different appetites because we want to please God and not just living for the world. Having said that, though, he says, but there are some things incumbent upon us in living out our faith. Thanks for joining us for Pastor Gary's message in the book of 2 Peter here on Cornerstone Connection. There's so much to learn from the Apostle Peter's letter, but one theme does stand out. Peter urges his readers to spend time in the Word, letting it teach you about God as you grow in your faith. Today, you've done just that by tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. We don't need to be your only source of biblical teaching, though. In fact, we encourage you to read along with us and even study ahead in 2 Peter. It can be helpful to have some extra resources to help guide your study, too. So if you're looking for additional material, we invite you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. Look under the Teachings tab for our companion resources. These are simply additional material Pastor Gary has provided to coincide with studies of the Word. That website again is cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd be happy to point you to more great resources too. Just give us a call. You can reach us at 703-771-1500. When you call, let us know how we can be lifting you up in prayer. Again, our number is 703-771-1500. We've come to the end of our time with you today, but we're glad we were able to spend time with you. Join us next time for more right here on Cornerstone Connection.